Welcome to FPC Meridian Sermon Podcast. In this sermon, our head pastor, Dr. Rhett Payne, studies the book of Romans. We pray that God's hand would be upon you as you listen to the faithful preaching of his word. Let's begin. So my sources for today's message include R.C. Sproul's book, The Righteous Shall Live by Faith, uh, his uh, commentary on Romans, Kent Hughes' commentary on Romans called Preaching the Word, John R.W. Stott, The Message of Romans from the Bible Speaks Today series, and uh, John MacArthur's The MacArthur New Testament Commentary on Romans. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word as we look at Romans chapter 2, starting at verse 17. This is the Word of God. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know His will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law... If you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law, will condemn you who, even though you have been, you have the written code in the circumstances, in circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this, your word. Please help us to understand it and apply it to our lives. Thank you for your Holy Spirit's presence here. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. Do you know what a hypocrite is? A hypocrite is a play actor, according to the definition of the word. But it's the person who pretends to be what they are not. Henry Ford is one of the biggest names in American life. His mass production of manufacturing the Model T automobile shaped not only the economy and industry, but the values of 20th century America. A 2005 biography of Ford tells the story of the man who achieved incredible fame and fortune and describes how, in the end, this, quote, gifted man was undone by his own success, end of quote. Henry Ford loved the the ordinary folk. He loved the ordinary people, and they loved him back. By 1920, half of all the cars on U.S. roads were Fords. But it wasn't just cars that Ford was selling. He preached a new gospel to a public raised on Puritan ideals 
of delayed gratification and self-control. Ford believed that money was for spending. (laughs) And I think a lot of people have taken him up on that. He also believed that workers should use their income to buy products that would improve their lives. Products like his Model T. Seen as a hero for making it possible for the average family to own a car, Ford's opinion was sought from not just automobiles, but for every area of life, from world peace to marriage and to child care. The admiration of others ultimately convinced Henry Ford that he was infallible, that he could do no wrong. And ultimately, that led him to some very bad decisions. It blinded him to his own hypocrisy as he preached family values and old-fashioned virtue, and yet he kept a mistress. It may also have driven him to destroy his only child. Henry Ford was offended by his son's gentle style and superior education, and so he ruthlessly undercut his son at every turn, only then to mourn grievously when Edsel died young. Ford's last days were spent in sorrow. On a visit to the house where he lived as a newlywed, he told his chauffeur, I've got a lot of money. And I give every penny of it, every penny of it right now, just to have some time here with Mrs. Ford. John Haywood, who lived in the 16th century, was an English writer known for his plays, his poems, his collections of proverbs. He once said this, there are none so blind as those who will not see. Ray Stevens also said that. It resembles Jeremiah 5, verse 21, which reads, Hear this, you foolish and senseless people, you who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Here's a quote for you. Many Christians define sin as the sum total of acts which they themselves do not commit. A lot of truth in that. And that sentiment actually describes the Jews perfectly in Paul's day. And so let's look at three lessons this morning. The first being this, the danger of spiritual pride. The danger of spiritual pride. Verse 17, Paul says, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, God's chosen people were the Hebrews. They were the Israelites. But by the time of Christ, they were called the Jews. Why? Well, the term comes from Judah, the name of one of the twelve tribes, also the name of the southern kingdom after the kingdom of Israel split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the southern kingdom being Judah, following Solomon's death. But during and after Babylonian captivity, the term was used of the entire race of Hebrews. They were called the Jews. So if you were a Jew, you wore that name as a badge of great honor and pride. And in Jesus' day, the Jewish people had lost sight of the purpose of their divine calling, which was to be a channel through which the whole world would be blessed. After all, the Jews had the law of God, which is what Paul alludes to here over and over again. The law of God, which was the glory of Israel. Instead of viewing those blessings as a trust from a gracious and forgiving God, they believed it was because of their own uniqueness and goodness. Look with me in. John chapter 8, the Gospel of John chapter 8. 
And the heading of this passage says, a dispute over who Jesus is. John 8, verse 31. It says, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said this, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And Jesus replied in verse 34, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, a slave to sin. But skip back up to verse 33 and where they say this, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? They couldn't see. They had eyes, but they couldn't see. They had ears, but they couldn't hear. Verse 24 of our text. Look back in the text. Romans chapter 2. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The Gentiles were blaspheming God for the way that the Jews were treating them. Non-Christians often say that about Christians. I mean, it's sometimes valid, isn't it? They say things like, you know, the church is full of hypocrites. You ever heard that before? Trust me, I've heard it quite a few times. One minister rightly responded to that saying by responding, yes, the church is full of hypocrites, but there's always room for one more. (laughs) If you know your New Testament, then you know that Jesus was constantly rebuking the Pharisees. He was constantly pushing them. Why? Because they were, according to Jesus, hypocrites. A hypocrite is a master at masquerading. So, in other words, they pretended that they had a form of righteousness that they really did not possess. So, let me say this and make sure you understand. If you're not a member of this church, if you're a guest and and you're here maybe for the first time, the church is full of sinners, including this guy. The church is full of sinners, which isn't a problem because the first qualification to be a member of this club, which is not a club, is that you admit that you're a sinner. We have to be a sinner to get in. You can't get into this church as a member unless you admit that you're a sinner. You see, the church is not a place for perfect people. Someone has said the church is a hospital for sinners, not a sanctuary for saints. I like that. Sometimes the reason people call us hypocrites is because they notice that we are not perfect. If you've ever been accused of being a hypocrite, maybe it was because someone noticed you weren't perfect. And we should... Own that because we're not doesn't make us a hypocrite to be not perfect, since the hypocrite is someone who claims to be more righteous than he or she really is. So don't miss this. Whenever a Christian, a follower of Christ feels superior to other people, he should watch out. If you ever have a sense where you're feeling superiority over someone else, better be careful, because that kind of attitude is not a sign Of grace. It's not a sign of God's grace. I mean, you and I, we're quite possibly here on a regular basis. And the danger is that our familiarity with the things of God could lead us into spiritual presumption. There's a passage that always gets my attention in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven 
but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, that day being the judgment day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. So, as I've said before, the question really isn't, do you know Jesus? The question is, does Jesus know you? So the danger of spiritual pride is the first lesson. Lesson number two, the danger of false security. The danger of false security. Look at verse 25 in our text. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you become, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So this topic of circumcision is extremely important to our understanding of the gospel. God instituted circumcision, which is the cutting off of the foreskin of one's flesh, as the mark of his covenant with Abraham and his descendants. The requirement was put on not only Abraham, but also on his children. Throughout the Old Testament, this sign of circumcision, this covenant sign, was given to adults and to their children, which is why the new covenant sign of baptism is also given to the children of the covenant. Now, when God initiated this covenant with Abraham, he told him, he actually promised him in Genesis 15 that he would have a son. So if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. First book of the Bible, Genesis 15. Verse six. Genesis 15, verse 6 says, Abram, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So Genesis 15, verse 6 is the first clear teaching of justification by faith alone. But at about the time that Abram said he believed God, he started doubting. He started doubting. And he asked how he could know for sure that this would take place. And so listen to Genesis 15 verses 9 and 10. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. When I sat under Dr. R.C. Sproul as my professor at RTS Orlando, Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, he told a story about people asking him from time to time to sign their Bibles, to sign their Bibles and to put his life verse in it. Okay, it's, you know, pretty normal. Would you sign my Bible and would you put your favorite verse in there? Dr. Sproul said he had a difficult time coming up with his favorite life verse. He says, I mean, come on, there's so many verses to pick from. So he said he used different verses throughout a lot of the years, but his favorite was Genesis 15:17. Anybody have a Bible? And if you're in Genesis, would you look at Genesis 15:17? He would write that verse in their Bible when he write his name. He signed a number of books for me. I never had him signed my Bible, but he signed some of the books that he wrote, and he would write a verse sometimes. Sometimes he would write this one, Genesis 15, 17. Listen to it. 
When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. <laughs> he said, you know, I knew I'd get a rise out of them. He said, if, they, if not the day I signed it, at least eventually they were going to come to me and say, well, what, what in the world is this verse? What does it mean? He said he loved that verse because it contained a theophany. A theophany. What is a theophany? It's a manifestation of God. Okay? So that's what's happening in this verse. The fire in this verse represents God, and God moves between the pieces that have been torn apart. So what was God say, saying to Abraham through this? He was saying, if I do not keep my promise, may I be cut in half. May I be cut in half. So what's the point? The point is that Paul is reminding the Christians at Rome that the fact that they are circumcised does not guarantee them the blessings of God. And since the parallel to circumcision is baptism, you and I need to be reminded baptism does not save anyone. Joining a church does not save anyone. Baptism is simply an outward sign of what God, what we're asking God to do inwardly. The real test is not whether we've been baptized outwardly, but instead whether or not we've been baptized inwardly. The sign of baptism, just like circumcision, points to an inward spiritual reality. So the question is, do you possess that inward spiritual reality this morning? Do you possess Christ in you? Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified. It's with the mouth that you confess and are saved. So, have you had a heart change? Have you had a heart transplant through Jesus Christ coming into your heart? I really have to hammer this point home because there are people, even here today possibly, who, I'm, who, who maybe feel like they're guaranteed salvation because they grew up in a Christian home. They, they joined a church. They were baptized. Maybe even served as an officer. Those are all outward signs of an inward reality. The real test of the inward reality is obedience. Obedience. Disobedience to God put the circumcised Israelites in the same category of judgment as the uncircumcised Gentiles. That's the whole point of the passage. So we must all consider the question, where does my confidence lie? Where does my confidence lie? Does it rest with my religious affiliation or does it rest, rest with what Christ has done for me, which has transformed my heart? So the danger of spiritual pride, the danger of false security, and then the third and final lesson, the danger of a bad example. The danger of a bad example. Look at verse 21. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? And, and on and on it goes. You, you heard it. Look at verse 28. A person who is not a Jew, who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. This is not really a new teaching as the concept is found throughout the Old Testament. In the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, which is called the Law, God complains about his people's uncircumcised hearts. And he even tells them, 
Circumcise your hearts. So look with me at Matthew, the book of Matthew, chapter 18 for a moment. Matthew, chapter 18. Verse 6. And I love this passage because in Matthew 18, Jesus called a little child to him. And the little child came and sat on his lap. And he said, unless you change and become like a little child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Basically, he was saying what he said to Nicodemus. You all need to be born again. You need a change of heart. And so he went on and talked about that. And he says, whoever welcomes one... One such child in my name welcomes, welcomes me. So Jesus loved children. And I, I love that about Jesus. And then listen to what he says in verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. This is a pretty scary image. He intended it to be scary. It was particularly scary to Jews. The Greek here carries the idea of not only being drowned in the depths of the sea, but that it would be better to be drowned far out in the open sea. And the Jews didn't like this image because the average Jew feared the sea. Drowning was sometimes a Roman punishment, but it was never a Jewish punishment. To the Jew, it was a symbol of complete and utter destruction. And so listen to the next verse, verse 7. Woe to the world. Because of the things that cause people to stumble. And then he says, such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. So ask yourself, am I doing anything? Am I doing anything that might cause another person to stumble, to sin? And this was so serious to Jesus that he even used another illustration of gouging out our eyes. And again, it's not meant to be literal. But he said, to gouge out your eyes is a better solution in the present than to suffer spiritual pain for all eternity. For instance, if you use crude and offensive language, you're teaching your children how to speak like you. If your teenager misses a curfew by a few minutes every once in a while, say every couple of months, then you can teach them about grace. But if these violations are more common, then discipline means teaching your children the importance of consequences and of promise keeping. But it's not just parents who need to hear about being an example. It's, it's every member of this church. And the vows that we just took today at this baptism, those vows you take, I take, are assisting parents as they rear their children. They're serious vows. But again, the little ones that Jesus speaks of here, it covers more than just young children. The literal child. It also means new and immature believers of any age. They're little ones in the faith. Your example of these young believers can have untold spiritual blessings and benefits. Now think about this as we come to a close. When the Lord called Saul, when the Lord called Saul to be Israel's first king, the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 10, God changed his heart. God changed his heart. Until then, Saul had been handsome, athletic, and not a lot else. Okay? So he started off pretty well, but eventually, if you know the story, he began to revert to old heart patterns. 
Have you ever done that? You know, you start out well following the Lord, and then all of a sudden you find yourself going the other direction. The new king named Saul chose to disobey God and to trust himself rather than trusting God. Among other things, he presumed to take for himself the priestly role of offering a sacrifice. He refused to destroy all of the Amalekites and their possessions as God had commanded in 1 Samuel 15. And as a result, the Lord took the kingdom away from Saul. He took it away from him and he gave it to who? To David. Saul's actions were wrong because his heart rebelled. And it is by our hearts that the Lord judges us. And that's what our verse of the week is about. It was said of David's leadership over Israel. He shepherded them with integrity of heart. With his skillful hands, he led them. That's Psalm 78, verse 22. God gave the kingdom to David because why? Because he was a man after God's own heart. And as John MacArthur puts it so well, he says, David pleased God's heart because God pleased David's heart. Now, it doesn't mean David was perfect. We know he wasn't perfect. It simply means that his heart was not a divided heart. He was pure in heart in the sense that he was self-focused. He was focused on the Lord. He loved the Lord. He was sincerely devoted to the Lord. And yet he did trip up along the way, as all of us will. My question today is, what kind of shape is your heart in? And that brings us to our verse of the week, which is 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. Let's read this out loud together. 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Let us pray. Father in heaven, you see our hearts. We're exposed before you. You see us as we really are, not as we portray ourselves to be, and that's intimidating. And so we come to you, the one who searches our hearts, asking that you cleanse us of our double-mindedness, of our hypocrisy, of our saying one thing and doing another. So many ways, Lord, we've all, we've all sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. And in omissions, things that we should have done that we have not done. And so we're in the right place, Father. We're in church with your people. And we're here with your spirit present. And so we come to you. And I pray that you enable the people, enable the people here today whose hearts are convicted over the condition of their heart. That they would repent, Lord, and turn from their wicked ways. And that you would heal their hearts. Forgive them of their sins and give them a new heart. I pray for any who does not have a relationship with Christ in this place that this would be the beginning of a new life for them as they put their trust in you, Lord Jesus. And for those who are Christians and call themselves Christians but know that they've lived a double life, would you convict them and lead them to repentance and to forgiveness at your throne of grace and mercy? I pray all of this with thanksgiving. In the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus the Lord. Amen. Let's sing.